And if you, you, if you remember, we were in chapter 6 last week, but we didn't finish the chapter, and for good reason. We left off with Elisha leading a part of the Syrian army inside the walls of Samaria. Remember, he asked God to blind them. And then Elisha had King Jehoram, or Joram, same person, different, na different names, the king of the top northern tribes. Elisha had him feed them, these Syrian rebel soldiers, and then send them home. A very merciful gesture on their part. On their part. That's where we left off in verse 3. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So this act of grace impacted these renegade raiders, but the same did nothing for the heart of the king of Syria. Look at verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all of his army as the Lord God's hand of judgment is still upon the northern tribes of Israel for their sinful ways. I mean, the thing to keep in mind is the only time these troops invade Israel is when they're not walking where they're supposed to be, and where they're supposed to be walking. And so he went up and besieged Samaria, which means he's completely surrounded the city. Nothing gets in, nothing gets out. They have a water supply source running up north. They're going to plug it up. That's why if you've ever been to Israel, Hezekiah built a tunnel underground that brought the water into Israel. And it says there was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. Now, you know, you've never had real cuisine until you've eaten donkey head stew. <laughs> and a fourth of a cab of dove poop. Sorry, that's what it says. Some commentators want to make it beans. I disagree. It sold for five shekels of silver. And the reason I really believe they're right is because as we get down through here, if you're going to eat your children in desperation... And I think it'd be safe to say you're going to eat dove poop as well. Sad conditions. And yet the crazy thing is, all they had to do was turn back to the Lord. So they brought all of this upon themselves. Very similar. You know, I was thinking this through. You know, I got saved in 83. Hippie movement was long gone. You know, there's still holds out, holdouts here and there. So that so that was 40, you know, if you go back from where we are today, what was that, 79, 89, 99, two, yeah, so that, I graduated in 79. There wasn't hippies then. So the hippie movement, when Jesus, Jesus did that big thing through the Jesus movement, you know, that was 40 years ago, plus. And so the church is now reaping whatever happened after that. And it doesn't really seem to catch our attention because life continues as is. And these guys, all they had to do was turn back. That's all they had to do. They had to, all they had to do was get their life back on track with the Lord God, and He would have, He would have figured. We we watched them every time they turn in the midst of disaster. God comes in and saves them. They don't turn. Then, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying. Help me, my Lord, O King. And he said, if the Lord, and that's capital L-O-R-D, so it's Yahweh. If the Lord Yahweh, if the Lord God Almighty does not help you, where can I find help from you? 
for you. From the threshing floor or from the wine press, no, those have both been licked clean. And the sad fact of affairs is they would have tore down Jeroboam's cows, purged themselves of the idols, that they would have humbled themselves. I'm positive. Just like for us, the church would ever wake up. Positive the Lord God would have healed their land. He will eventually, though, years from now. But they did not, they, you know, they didn't have to get into this place. Here's how bad it was, verse 28. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today. See why they ate dove poop? And we'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. And yeah, for good reason. But that's the condition physically, but also spiritually of what's going on in their land. Now it happened. When the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes as, as he passed by on the wall, the people looked and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. But religious activity without heart change will never get the Lord's attention, ever. Then he said, God, so, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. If you remember at the start of this chapter, he said, Oh, my father, my father, save us. And now he wants his head. Well, we all know how this is going to turn out. And the sad thing is, is the king is directing his anger at the wrong person. He should have looked up and realized it was his fault. But really wanting to play the victim card and blaming someone else, he's going to make it the man of God. So here comes the king. But Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, Elisha, who had a very clear relationship with the Lord, said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, as he's talking to these elders there, sitting in the house with them. When the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. You know, pin him against the wall. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? At least the king seems to acknowledge why they're in the predicament that they are in now. But seeing he's blamed everyone else, he now directs his anger towards and blames the Lord. crazy. From my father to let's behead him. Some things still remain the same. Then Elisha said, verse 1 of chapter 7, to all those with him in his house, the elders, the messenger of the king, the king, he said to them, hear the word of the Lord as the prophet speaks forth God's truth. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow about this time, so 24 hours from now, I see a, a fine flower, you know, so a measure of flour, is this is probably equal to a third of an ephah, if Haley's right. It's 20 pounds of flour, 
shall be sold for a shekel, 64 cents, according to Mr. Haley. I don't know if that's right. Nobody really knows. Two C is a barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. So in other words, tomorrow Costco is going to pop up right outside the walls, and the demand is going to be so low, their supply is going to be so high, the prices are going to drop dramatically, and everyone's going to be fed. And an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, <laughs> like, look, buddy boy, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? How's his faith? Yeah, non-existent. And Elisha said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, Mr. Doubter, but you shall not eat of it. Well, how's that possible? Well, if you've read ahead, you know exactly how it's going to happen. Verse 3 tells us how it all happens. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, outside the gate, because, you know, the religious Israel that thought they were so right with God, and yet they're getting disciplined and judged by him, would have nothing to do with these guys. They have to stay outside the gate. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Because, see, all they would get is what was thrown over the wall. Well, if people are eating dove poop and their own kids, I would imagine they're not getting much over the wall these days. And so here they are. They're starving to death. Verse 4, as they work the hypothetical. If we say we will enter the city, which they couldn't do anyway, the famine's in the city and we shall die there. And if we sit here, well, we're going to die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians, because they, remember, Naaman had leprosy. So they see they don't see it as an unclean thing, remember? They see it as something different. If they keep us alive, hey, we're going to live. And if they kill us, hey, we, we shall only die. I mean, we're already slowly dying away anyway. And I want us to recognize that the Lord God Almighty foresaw their thoughts before they even spoke them. It's important for us to realize that. God knows our thoughts even before we speak them. And this is why Elisha said, tomorrow at this time, there's going to be food in abundance because our Lord knows our thoughts before we think them. So the lepers rose at twilight. I believe this is in the evening. The sun is setting to go to the camp of the Syrians as they're walking out there. It's getting dark. And when they came, had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. There was no one on guard. And here's why. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses. That's all. And we doubt his provision at times. That's all God had to do. Hey, send in a big Wi-Fi system, you know, crank up the wattage. And so they hear this noise of a great army. So they said to one another, look, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. So being super paranoid, they arose and fled at twilight in the evening and left the camp intact, their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. Okay, so here's the crazy thought here, because we're going to read it was nighttime. The armies fled before the emperors, or empress, I don't know what I was thinking. The, the armies fled before the lepers entered. That is fact. So God has provided for all of the people in the 10 northern tribes, even before they realized he had, because it's sitting there. I mean, that's fact as well. It's just sitting there. The provision's there. Only the God that sent his son to die in your place and now sits at the right hand of the Father and interceding for you and I 
can do that. Last chapter, remember, God struck him with blindness. Now he strikes them with imaginary enemies to fulfill his purposes. And this is such a great picture as to why we never need to worry. Because see, our God knows our needs before we know them ourselves. And here for these guys, and they're not even walking where they should be. I mean, how hard is it for the Lord God to send a little noise into the Syrian camp that sounds like some horses and chariots? Not hard at all. Not only did he know what the lepers would think a day ahead of Elisha's prophecy, he also knew what he would do to get the enemy to run away. And he knew all of it all at the same time. That's why we never need to worry. I'm, I'm certain probably a lot of us know Philippians chapter 4, 6, and 7, but do you know verse 8? If you don't, you should probably turn there and look real quick. You know, anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, the one here who sees all and knows all things, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will put a military guard around your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Finally, there doesn't really mean finally like now we finally get to come to this. No, it's just a, it's a continuation of the thought. Brethren, whatever things are true. Because see, if you're worried about stuff, here's the cure. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, and, and, and notice this is forcing me to go up. Because the only time you worry is when, I, I, I can guarantee you don't worry about God. Don't worry about God holding the universe in his hands, right? Anybody ever worry about that? That God might fall asleep and the whole thing just falls apart. You know, we always worry about earthly things. Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. So you don't meditate and freak out on what you don't know or don't have or can't see. Instead, meditate on these things, these things that are true whatever things are noble, whatever things are just and pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report. And that's why God's word tells us to be anxious for nothing. And see, as you meditate on these things, in doing so, you set your heart and mind on things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And as you do that, God allows this military, and I don't know how he does it, puts this military guard around your heart and your mind. And no longer do you have your mind on this earth where you try and control things. That's why people get anxious anyway. I get anxious if I try and control my life too. Verse 8, when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, you know, and the camp was surrounding the entire city of Samaria, far enough away out so they couldn't get arrows shot at them or anything. They went into one tent, ate, and drank. You know, we don't know what they're thinking at this time other than they're stoked. And they carried from it silver and gold and clothing, you know, a stash for later days, and they went and hit them. Then they came back and entered another tent and ate all the food that was in there and carried some from there also and went and hit it as well, as they are totally living for themselves and not declaring the good news that they possessed. But somewhere along the way, the fear of God seeks to settle in. 
And they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. You and I, we possess good news. That's good. It'll save people's lives. It'll save them from death. It'll save them from hell. It'll save them from their sin. It'll save them from an eternal separation from God. We possess that. They said to one another, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news. And we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, which is coming, some punishment will come upon us. Or so they thought. So I like the look here. They first ate of the good news. They owned it before they went out and told others about it. Because if you don't own it, it's not a part of you. It's hard to give something away that you don't own. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they went and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly, no one was there. Not a human sound. Only horses and donkeys tied up. The tents intact, the coffee was still steaming. As the lepers speak to the only people who'd probably speak to them. And the gatekeepers called out, and you know, as the sounds drifted towards the king's house, and they told it in the, to the king's household inside, saying, Hey, these lepers have declared that the Syrian army has left. So the king rose in the night and said to the servants, let me now tell you what the Syrians have done to us. Of course, he can look into the future, this pagan king. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the, their camp to hide themselves in the field, saying, when they come out of the city, we shall catch them alive and get into the city. Man, good thing no one listened to him, right? And one of his servants answered and said, Please, Mr. King, let several men take five of the remaining horses which are left in the city. Look, they may either become like all the multitude of Israel that are left in it, meaning dead, or indeed, I, I say, they may, or, or they may become like all the multitude of Israel left from those who are consumed. So let us send them and see. King, we got nothing to lose here. Therefore they took two chariots with horses, and the king sent them in the direction of the Syrian army, saying, Go and see. And they went after them. Okay, please keep in mind as we I mean, they, they are eating dove poop and their kids, okay? And they went after them to the Jordan, and indeed all the road was full of garments and weapons which the Syrians had thrown away in their haste, you know, seeking to get away from their pending imaginary Egyptian chariots. So the messengers returned and told the king. And as they do, Elisha's prophecy moves from spoken to the people seeing and believing, really, with their own eyes. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord, exactly like Elisha had said, so no more dumpling. Now, the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he had leaned to have charge of the gate. You know, Mr. Doubter, the one that said, how's cow could that be? So he made him in charge of the gate, but the people trampled him in the gate. 
like the running of the bulls in Spain would be my first guess. And he died just as the man of God had said who spoke when the king came down to him. So it happened just as the man of God had spoken to the king saying, two seahs of barley for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel shall be sold tomorrow about this time in the gate of Samaria. I mean, God who knows all things, he knew what the price of flour would sell for. And then that officer, Mr. Doubter, who had answered the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And Elisha had said, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, Mr. Doubter, as the people trample you to death standing in the gate, but you're not going to eat it. And who knows, maybe there wasn't a big rush in the beginning as just a few going out when they started coming back in with stuff and then everybody went. And he's sitting there watching others eat it as he's dying. So what happened to him for the people trampled him in the gate and he died, just like God had foretold through his man, Elisha. Totally an act of grace and mercy here. They don't deserve it. They haven't repented. And Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life. Remember I told you to keep track of Gehazi and the Shumanite woman? Remember way back a long time ago? Okay. And he says to her, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and furthermore, it will come upon the land for seven years. It's always nice to have a prophet of the living God looking out for you. So the woman arose and did according to the saying of the man of God, and she went with her household and dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. So she heads to the same place where David headed when Saul was chasing him. Obviously, there must be better provisions <coughs> down there. And it came to pass. And again, you know, God sees everything. It's not a surprise to him. He sees, he knows, so he tells Elisha. Elisha goes and tells the, the woman, the woman that built him a little place to stay on top of his house, on top of her house. The one whose son had came back to life. Came to pass at the end of seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And she went to make an appeal to the king for her house and for her land. She needs to buy it all back. Then the king talked with Gehazi. Remember him? The man, the servant of the man of God? See, some guys say, oh, this was before. You know, it's out of order. I, I don't believe so. I don't think the king would have any problem sitting down and talking with a leper at a distance. I mean, I think that's what's happening here. Remember Gehazi goes out and tells Naaman, hey, yeah, a couple guys have come in from the field. We need a Need a little silver and a couple of changes to the clothing. Yet here's Gehazi. We know he's rich because he never got to, never, had, never had to give the money back. He, he's just a leper. So he got that on the side. And here he is hanging out with the evil king of Israel that has no real regard for God's laws saying, tell me, please. Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. Tell me about his magic tricks that he did. I don't think, I don't believe he's asking because he wants to know God. He's asking like Herod did. Remember what Herod wanted to do when Jesus walked? What did Herod want to do? 
He wanted to see some miracles. Hey, entertain me. How about a cheap circus show? I think that's what's going on here. Could be wrong. There's other answers. You can have yours. But I think that's what's going on here. Why would an evil pagan king all of a sudden want to hear about Elisha? Because he tells them, and there's no heart change here. Now, it happened as he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life. This is like totally God's perfect timing. That there was the woman whose son Elisha had restored to life. The one Gehazi was just telling the king about. And she's appealing to the king for her house and for her, her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord. And I wonder if Yahweh was still his Lord. I don't know. Maybe the love of money had destroyed all that he had left. And so he cries out, my Lord. Well, King, this is the woman. This is her son. Right here. Whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, yes, this is true. And the king, having some fear of God in him, appointed a certain officer for her, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the proceeds of the field from the day that she left the land until now. God's perfect timing for his God's kids. Then Elisha went to Damascus and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was sick. You know the one who laid the siege around Samaria in the last chapter? You know the one who was bringing God's judgment on northern Israel? This Elisha that, remember they tried to capture him before? Remember? They, they're going to capture him. Remember they they come and, and, and Elisha tells his servant, hey, look, no, no, there's more for us than there is for them. Remember God struck him with blindness. Well, now he's going to that same city. The same place where they tried to capture him before. And this Elisha walks right into the enemy's camp to see Ben-Hadad. No doubt public opinion of Elisha must have changed up there. And it was told the king, saying, The man of God has come here. And the king said to Haziel, Take a present in your hand, a nice present for a nice answer, and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? So Haziel went to meet him and took a present with him of every good thing of Damascus. Forty camel loads. You're going, really? That's a lot. No, but remember he has those schools of prophets, those young men. There. So he has, he's bringing him 40 camel loads, and he came and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, Assyria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this disease? And Elisha said to him, who hears from the Lord, said, Go, say to him, you shall certainly recover. However, the Lord has shown me that he'll really die. Like, bro, you're going to assassinate him. Then Elisha sent his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed. And the man of God wept. And Haziel said, Why is my Lord weeping? He answered, because I know the evil that you're going to do to the children of Israel. When Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, he wasn't weeping over them because they rejected them. He was weeping over them for what was going to come upon them in 70 AD and they'd be utterly decimated. 
And that's what's happening here. You know, it hurts me as you're going to attack my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. But then at the same time, they're going to reap judgment from God that they've been sowing all these years. So see, when you look at this, God brings his judgment upon them. He, you know, um, Jerome or Ahab, if we go all the way back to Ahab, Ahab called out, had a moment, weak moment, called out to God. God said, spare them. You know, and then we travel along and then, you know, all of a sudden there's, they're all surrounded and, you know, Elisha is my father and God saves them again. And then he brings judgment again and, you know, and then he's pulled the judgment back, trying to get their attention. And now it's going to come again, except it's going to come worse than they've ever seen it. Because they're going to reap judgment from God for all that they've been sowing all these years. It's a, it's, a, it's a universal principle that governs the universe. It's a spiritual principle. Whatever you sow, that's what you're going to reap. God will never be a debtor to you. But it's also a universal principle. It governs the universe. And, when, and whatever you sow, you always get back the same kind. And it's always later, and it's always more. Okay? That's what's happening here. So they've been sowing ungodliness, worshiping these golden calves. That's their God that brought us out of Egypt. They're going to get back more, and it's always going to be lighter. And here's what he sees that's going to happen. Their strongholds you're going to set on fire. Their young women or their young men you'll kill with the sword, and you will dash their children with rocks and rip open their women with child. And you're going, well, was... Northern Israel, as bad as that, doesn't matter. God has to judge them. He's going to judge them by someone just as ungodly or worse. And so this guy is going to be brutal. But, it's, but is it not also possible that Elisha is telling him all of this, of what he's going to be like with the hope that he repents and surrenders his life to the God of Israel? Yeah, I think it's like highly, highly possible. I mean, this guy now knows what he's going to do. He, Elisha's told him he has the opportunity to repent. Remember when God spoke to Cain in, in Genesis chapter 4? Why did God speak to him? Huh? Okay, what else? Why did God speak to him? So he would succeed or fail? Yeah, he spoke to him so he'd succeed, right? Why are you angry, Cain? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you shall, but you should rule over it. I mean, God wants them to succeed. God gave him everything he needed to know to do right. Just like Elisha does the upcoming king here in Syria. But God can never violate his free will. And we know he killed his brother. You know, God knew what Cain would do because he knows all things. But he in no way made Cain kill his brother any more than the new king of Syria is going to be wicked towards Israel. See, they both had free will choices to make based upon the foreknowledge of God. They just both chose wrong. So Haziel said... 
but what is your servant? A, but a, you know, but a dog. I mean, I'm I'm a nothing. That he should do this gross thing. And Elisha answered, it's like you know, it's like God says, look, I know your heart more than you but you do. And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you'll become king of Syria. I mean, how could I do this gross thing? Man, why not repent, run back to Elisha? Look, how do I get out of this? Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? Oh, he answered, he told me, You're, you would surely recover. Maybe as the king lets his guard down, but it happened on the next day, the king got waterboarded that he took a thick cloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face. So that he died. And Haziel reigned in his place. Now in the fifth year of Joram, or Jehoram, okay, remember those names? We saw them, I think, back in chapter 3. They, the king of the north, the king of the south, they both had the same name. So you got to keep track only with where they're ruling. That's the only way to keep, keep track of them. Now in the fifth year of King Joram, or Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, so he's up north, Jehoshaphat, having been king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, so he's down south, began to reign as the king of Judah. And he was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. So this is Jehoshaphat's son. And if he only reigned eight years, then it's obviously probably wasn't a very good king. And he and here's what it says, verse 18: He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, just as the house of Ahab had done. Well, how's that possible? I mean, Jehoshaphat's your dad; he was a godly king. But then here's how it's possible: for the daughter of Ahab was his wife, Jehoshaphat's son, the king of Judah. And so here you go. That's why God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what, is, what does the devil have in common with God? You know, don't be unequally yoked. But here you go. This is why evil reigns down in Judah, because she's a chip off the old block, and he must be marrying her so he can have an alliance up north or something. I mean, we don't really know why. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And no doubt he did. So he's totally opposite of what his dad had done. But this son here watched his dad compromise. Remember, we saw him going up and hanging out with the king of the north many times. And then he marries, the son marries Ahab's daughter. Now that's about as close to bringing evil home to your house. So compromise is flowing everywhere. Yet the Lord would not destroy Judah. Why? He's going to tell us. For the sake of his servant David, as he promised him to give a lamp to him as his sons forever. And that's, it points to the Messiah. It points to our Jesus. That's the only reason God doesn't judge him here. It's because of the promise that God had made to King David. In his days, Edom revolted against Judah's authority and made a king over, their cell, over themselves as the alliance with the north. It's not making them stronger. No, it's making them weaker in the eyes of their enemies. And so they start to lose more ground for worshiping the false gods of their day. So Joram went to Zaire and all his chariots with him. Then he rose by night and attacked the Edomites who had surrounded him and the captains of the chariots and the troops fled to their tents. 
Thus, Edom has been in revolt against Judah's authority to this day because Judah is revolting against the Lord. And Limna, Libna revolted at that time as well. So, I mean, the prom God's promise to them was, look, you walk with me, I'm going to bless you, you don't. You get the curses. Now, the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we'll get to them. So Joram, the evil king of the south, rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then ah Ahaz Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. And in the 25th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, so we're up north now, Ahaziah, the son of Jerome, down south, who only reigned eight years, king of Judah, he began to reign. And Ahaziah was 22 years old when he became king, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. So, you know, he learned nothing from his grandfather, but he must have learned everything from his father, unless this is probably another son of Jehoshaphat. His mother's name was Athaliah, or however that's pronounced. She's a real piece of work here. Keep, keep an eye out for her. She's going to show up again. She's the granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. And he walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab had. For he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. Now he went with Jerome, the son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Syria, at Ramoth, Gilead, and the Syrians wounded Jerome. Then King Jerome went back to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Syrians had afflicted on him at Ramah when he fought against Haziel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jerome, king of Judah, went down to see Jerome, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. And that's kind of the sick history <laughs> right here. But, but what we see through this over and over again is God knows your needs before you get there. God sees, you, God sees everything that you need before you get there. You know, that's why we find things like trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Because if you lean on your own understanding, how, how far ahead in, in advance can you see? Nothing. But as I trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not on my own understanding and in all of my ways acknowledge him, his promise to me is he's going to direct my path. Or if I bring it into the New Testament, if I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, he's going to provide for me. The promises are valid. The pictures are clear. These guys are going to reap what they've been sowing. And that's kind of where we are with the church today. The church is reaping what it's been sowing. You know, you, anymore, it's like, what crazy idea do they have today in our country? You know, and yet, and yet the, everyone just kind of keeps on snoozing along. It's crazy. It's crazy. Father, we're thankful for all that you want to do in our lives. Lord, we can see, Lord, what happens here when these people turn away from you. 
And Lord, help us. Lord, to pray. Lord, to look to you, to seek you for forgiveness for the sin that's in our own country. Lord, we wouldn't get logs in our eyes and seek to point out the wrongs in the country, but we would own it, even as Nehemiah owned it. And as Daniel owned it, Lord, we'd seek to own the sin that's in our country right now and realize it's here because of us. Because blind people can never see the truth, but the church can. And so, Lord, we're just asking that, Lord, you would forgive us for not stepping in and speaking up and declaring the good news. And, Lord, would you just have mercy on us. and Lord, use us in these last days that we walk in. Lord, we want to be found in that place 